Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Victoria Walcott. She is a professor of history at the University of Buffalo, SUNY. Her new book is titled Living in the Future, Utopianism and the Long Civil Rights Movement. I'm joined by 14 of my classmates. Ron Blau, class of 63. So I've known some of these people for a long time, especially John and Kent. John and I were roommates, um, senior year, a great year. Um, Spent most of my life in television and video, then narrowed it down to script writing. And now I'm doing some climate things and um, working on the 2022 midterm elections, which I'm fairly scared about. Uh, I'm petrified, not just scared. So (laughs) it's gonna be a landslide. So, Victoria, I'm an environmental lawyer, uh, spent a couple of years at Peace Corps in Cusco, Peru, worked for the Department of Justice, for an oil company, for the state government, uh, for the Audubon Society, and uh, then for a nonprofit trade association. So I've had a white hat and a black hat during my <laughs> career. <laughs> Cindy. I'm living here in Italy, and um, uh, I, uh, I kind of trying to get over the death of my husband, which was two two months ago. Mm. And that's been hard, but you know, you have to go on. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for joining us. John wow. Wilford. Wilford. Oh, yeah, I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I've been since 77. Eliza, who's also in class of 63, is not hearing very well. So sometimes she doesn't like to come on, but she says hi to Victoria and I think I'll get her on soon. Okay, Peter. Yeah, hi, uh, Peter DeLisavoy. I'm a, an editor and writer in New Hampshire. And after Harvard, I joined SNCC, mm-hmm. which, where we had our beloved community. And, and I worked uh, for about two and a half years with Charles Sherrod down in Southwest Georgia, where I still visit uh, till today. And uh, I believe Sherrod's is one of just two or so SNCC uh, chapters that have continued nonstop through the mm. present time, organizing farmers, cooperatives, and so on. And back in the day, we uh, often had meetings and at, and also uh, did some R&R out at a place called Koinonia Farm. Uh-huh. which I'm sure Victoria is familiar with, out of which came, uh, and, and, and I think it more or less had its heyday in the 50s, but it was still functioning in the 60s. And then out of it came uh, Habitat for Humanity after that. So that's me. Okay. Alden. Uh, hi there. I live in San Mateo, California, and uh, my wife and I have a firm consulting with nonprofits, but I have some connection to uh, Michigan. My grandfather 
uh, attended the University of Michigan in the 1890s, I think. My father graduated from the University of Michigan, uh, and I lived in Flint for three and a half years. Okay. George. My name is George Allen. I'm a classmate of all of the rest of these folks. Uh, I live on, on the west side of Los Angeles. I'm a sort of a semi-retired lawyer. I did uh, mostly civil rights and uh, a lot of other federal court litigation, including uh, nuclear test litigation against the United States government, a lot of military base dislocation uh, litigation uh, across the Western Pacific. Nick. Uh, I'm Nick Bancroft outside of Boston, um, <clears throat> classmate of these guys. Um, <clears throat> after uh, graduating, uh, uh, took a trip uh, around uh, from London to uh, Kathmandu, Nepal, looking at what we call the soft underbelly of the Soviet Union. Um, <clears throat> never a book, but <clears throat> started my thoughts about uh, morality, among other things. <clears throat> and uh, uh, it came back. Uh, my career was basically in Boston, uh, investments, trust, wills, all that kind of stuff. And uh, become a, 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 a admirer of Joe Nye, Do Morals Matter? And I think uh, his latest book. Or, and um, I wonder in the, in the uh, <clears throat> looking at utopianism, <clears throat> Uh, that's a, a sort of an interesting question. It's Spencer. I'm Spencer Jordan, class of 61. Grew up in the uh, civil rights movement, the liberation of Evanston, Illinois, <laughs> and the movement before the movement, uh, where we desegregated the town of Illinois and uh, in a period called the Camelot of Black Evanston. Mm -hmm. I uh, uh, did uh, study his American history at uh, Harvard and uh, today's topic is very interesting because I can remember Arthur Schlesinger dwelling on the, the burnt over district and the second awakening and the utopian uh, 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 waves that swept across America. So I'm really looking forward to this, uh, this, uh, this talk uh, uh, today. Yes, uh, John McCluskey, I'm uh, here in Bloomington, Indiana, where I've been for almost 50 years now. Uh, never thought we'd be in this particular spot this long, but it's been, uh, it's been kind to us. Uh, I'm uh, writing short fiction, interviewing some jazz musicians who I admire greatly, applauding the poise and the character of the latest uh, Supreme Court justice, um, and looking forward to... Um, uh, today's, uh, today's talk. George Jones. I am in Ann Arbor, Michigan, like John and Eliza. Obviously, there is a very significant Michigan connection here. And uh, although I am concerned, as, if, as is everyone else, about 2022, I just heard yesterday that Beto O'Rourke and Greg Abbott are in a virtual dead heat. Huh. So maybe there is hope. Doug. I'm Doug Shapiro. Um... I'm a retired physician and uh, animal behavioral ecologist. Uh, my wife and I moved to Louisville, Kentucky about 18 months ago, and I attended a, uh, uh, a, a substantial uh, a meeting of a group of people here last night on the importance of 
uh, hiring increasing numbers of uh, black uh, faculty members in colleges and universities around the state. Uh, it was a very interesting discussion. And uh, anyway, this is my way of uh, reconnecting or, or connecting with the community here. Marcy. Um, <clears throat> I'm in New York City, the capital of everything bad. Connie, me <laughs> good and good. Um, and I grew up in Buffalo, <laughs> and uh, um, have spent my life in David and Goliath battles against disinformation and bad public policies and spending priorities. Okay, Connie. Connie McDougall. Yes, uh, <clears throat> I'm in New York City. I'm a retired lawyer. I went to Harvard Law School. Um, my only connection with Michigan is that I once visited a friend there. Does that count? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I want to recommend a book called The Enigma of Clarence Thomas hmm. for a, a walk through a twisted philosophy of race. It, it's, it's pretty astounding, but very good book. Good morning. Uh, Hampton Howell, Harvard 63. I'm an unretired uh, uh, behavioral psychologist in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. I, I, I'm taking off on what you said, Doug. And uh, uh, I'm looking forward to today very much because uh, it's a lot of the utopianists, nonviolent utopianists that were a North Star for me through... Uh, through the 60s. Eliza, you with us? Yes, I'm I'm here and Hi. Uh, and there's a very strong connection to Victoria because she was a graduate student fellow at the Humanities Institute mm -hmm. and I was a fellows coordinator there. So we we shared a a space for a year. Yep. All right, now we go to Victoria and tell us about the book and uh, we'll go from there. Welcome. Uh, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Hearing all these little mini biographies, I am in with such an illustrious group, including movement veterans and all sorts of professionals. So, so thank you. This is going to be, I think, a really fun um, conversation. So, yes, I am a graduate of the University of Michigan, 1995. So, <clears throat> I actually have met some of you before, which is which is also. Um, a fabulous connection as well. So just briefly, because I want, you know, I, I want to hear um, questions and have a conversation about this, but I'm a professor of history at the University at Buffalo. Uh, and this new book is, which I actually have a copy of, although I think it's blurry in the, in the camera there, um, <clears throat> is a, my, it's my third book. And it very much comes out of some of my earlier work. So I should just say briefly, my first book, which was a uh, coming out of my dissertation, was about the city of Detroit, Michigan, and the migration of African-American women to that city and how they reshaped the city. Um, that was called Remaking Respectability. Uh, and my second book was about the question of recreation and segregation. So I wrote a book called Race, Riots, and the Roller Coasters, and it was something that, you know, when I was studying Detroit, I really um, noted that recreational areas, swimming pools, amusement parks, you know, those kinds of places were much more likely to be segregated in the North uh, throughout the, the first half of the 20th century. So it was something I wanted to explore in greater depth. So I wrote a book about both how these facilities were segregated and often, um, you know, policed through a kind of violence uh, where, 
African-Americans who tried to go into, say, a swimming pool or a beach would be beaten. Um, and then how uh, ordinary people, as well as more formal activists, challenged that segregation and how that, and, and how that played out throughout the rest of the 20th century. So, so that was my last book. But when I was writing that book, I kept coming across these groups of really radical pacifists very early, like late 30s and 1940s, right? Who were doing this desegregation work um, in places like Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, and elsewhere. Um, some of them were living in ashrams. Some of them were living in the kind of peace farms, you know, that you guys were talking about. Uh, some of them were in, you know, somewhat more formal civil rights organizations. And then I also ran across as, you know, part of this uh, desegregation campaign for swimming pools in Philadelphia that was being done by followers of the Father Divine movement. So of course I got very curious about this. I wrote the book. Um, I'm like, I, I just need to figure out what's going on here. This is much earlier than most historians have written about, uh, the, both in terms of the desegregation, but also the role of radical nonviolence and nonviolent direct action, which is usually associated with, you know, really 1960 on with SNCC. Um, and how did they influence the broader movement? So, that, so that's what got me started with this new book project, Living in the Future Utopianism in the Long Civil Rights Movement. Uh, I started with those radical pacifists. They include names that might be familiar to you, like Bayard Rustin, for example, who was very much part of this group. Um, the most important civil rights organization for that period that I was uh, talking about was the Con Congress of Racial Equality. Um, which Bayard Rustin helped to found, but also found these other activists who were kind of migrating from these different peace cells and ashrams and communities that really nobody, there's some work written on them um, in peace studies scholarship, but not very much. So I started to look at, you know, what were their influences? What kind of books did they read? Um, what did they, you know, give to the movement overall? Uh, and that's how I kind of created this book project. So basically what I'm looking at are both communities, um, individual activist communities and practices that engage in utopian, both practice and utopian ideas. And by utopian here, I'm talking about something relatively broad. Um, it's sometimes talked about as a kind of prefigurative politics, meaning they're essentially trying to live in the here and now in a world that they envision for the future. Uh, so that that vision for the future includes full racial equality. Um, it also often also includes some gender equality as well. Uh, alternatives to capitalism. So many of these folks were socialist, not communist, but socialist, uh, often Christian socialists, right, in this period as well. And they also were were very much engaged in nonviolence. So another way to think about the prefigurative piece of it is thinking about means and ends. So the end might be full racial equality, but for these folks, the means to get to the end, right, is as important. So sort of ideas about the beloved community, if you're thinking about Martin Luther King and the work of SNCC in the 1960s is very much influenced by that. Um, so I can talk in depth about, about specific chapters, but that's sort of the broad overview of the book. Uh, and I, I'm really pleased with how I was able to kind of weave together these different narratives and stories. So I will open it up for, for, for questions and I'm happy to go down whatever rabbit hole you want to open up for me. Um, would you say more about this community in Georgia that you and, and uh, Peter have referred to? The 
Kononia? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is what this is a category, um, what are often referred to as peace farms. And it played a really important role in the movement. And it played a really important, important role, um, as Peter was suggesting, in part as a refuge. So you can imagine if you're, you know, on the front line, if you're a SNCC activist and you're on the front lines in Mississippi or in some of these other areas that are particularly violent and, and, and exhausting, right, to do this work day after day. So this is a community, it's an interracial community in a rural area. It also operates as a cooperative, um, but it really acted in some ways as a kind of refuge for activists who could go. Uh, they, could, they could go swimming, <laughs> they could, you know, kind of restore themselves, their souls as well. Um, and again, it was a fully interracial community committed to nonviolence, committed to cooperation. Many of the folks who were involved in that particular peace farm were also engaged with the, the Bruderhof, um, in sort of, which is a religious, uh, a religious kind of nonviolent pacifist group too. So, so the, in, this is sort of this network of connections um, between these various ashrams and, and peace farms are really significant. They also suffered a fair amount of, of uh, harassment and violence from the Klan, um, including, you know, gunshots, uh, you know, Klan members driving by, uh, shooting into the farm, um, you know, bomb threats, et cetera. So they, there was a lot of harassment of that, of that place as well. So. I would like to hear about the origins of these groups. I mean, how were they founded? Who founded them? So in terms of the pacifist organizations, this sort of comes out of a kind of a more global movement um, in Europe, uh, in South Asia uh, as well, of radical pacifists who are living in what they often would call peace cells, right? So relatively small, you know, maybe... No, usually no more than a dozen or so, maybe 20. Um, so you play, you see these, these kinds of organizations in places like London uh, and, and elsewhere that emerge primarily after World War I, when, when pacifism, because of, of the absolute horrors of World War I, um, pacifism becomes a, a much more popular, um, you know, set of beliefs and, and gains more followers certainly in that period. So these are these are folks who um, often have international connections. Uh, so that has that kind of global piece of it. But there's also a deep connection to the utopian tradition in the United States specifically. So uh, there are you know certainly communities from really the late 18th century on. Um, some of the more ones that people are more familiar with would be something like the Shakers, right? which is a pacifist organization that actually believes in interracial harmony uh, as well. And so there was a direct tie between these 19th century and even earlier utopian experiments and what was happening in the first half of uh, the 20th century. So those, those ties were there as well. Um, but again, these are people who are really working against the kind of militarism uh, and, and you know, violence. I guess the other major sort of strand here is what we call utopian socialism. And I actually start off the book by talking about a, a utopian novel called Looking Backward, <clears throat> written by Edward Bellamy, who was a, a journalist in the United States in the late 19th century, who this is a sort of a classic utopian socialist novel um, talking about the, the United States in the year 2000 as a socialist utopia, essentially. Um, and the utopian socialists really saw them or set themselves uh, apart from what are often called the scientific socialist, which would be Marx and Engels. Um, and they set themselves apart because what they're calling for 
is a nonviolent revolution, right? And this is part of the means and ends. So they want to see a socialist future, but in order to get to that future, they're going to do that nonviolently. So in the late 19th and early 20th century, there is a lot of that particular novel was very popular, um, but there is also actual groups that form um, utopian socialist, you know, groups, utopian communities in places like California and elsewhere to propagate those ideas. Gandhi, how, how did Gandhi fit into that? Uh, for his uh, uh, utopian views, let's say. Yeah. So Gandhi's absolutely central to the story. Um, and what's I think important uh, to understand is that the, uh, the black press, the African-American newspapers, which play such a key role um, throughout this period, they were very closely following what Gandhi was doing in South Asia um, as early as the late 1920s. So there is a lot of interest within the black community um, about Gandhi. Du Bois uh, writes about him you know, extensively in the Crisis Magazine in the late 1920s. Um, and then one of the chapters I, I talk about a, a really important theologian, um, a, a close friend and, and you know, in some ways mentor to Martin Luther King uh, by the name of Howard Thurman. And Howard Thurman uh, was the first African-American to actually travel to India and meet directly with Gandhi. Um, and then he bring, and then he comes back to the United States and he does essentially a speaking tour uh, and talks uh, about Gandhi's teachings, you know, throughout the United States um, to largely black and some interracial audiences. And he's very much part of what, what's actually called the Fellowship House movement. He starts a, an interracial fellowship church in San Francisco. Um, and there's also fellowship houses in Philadelphia and elsewhere in the country. And actually the Fellowship House in Philadelphia is where Martin Luther King first heard um, extensively about the teachings of Gandhi. So he goes there uh, to hear an address by Mordecai Johnson, who was the president of Howard University at the time, who's talking about Gandhi's teachings, talking about nonviolent direct action. Um, and King writes about this later in, in uh, Stride Towards Freedom, which is his first real memoir, that he he left that the fellowship house that night and went out and bought you know half a dozen books right um, about Gandhi. So this is you know before the Montgomery bus boycott. This is you know in the in the I think it's 1951 uh, this particular moment. So it does have a pro profound uh, influence. And again, the Congress of Racial Equality, um, these other sort of peace cells are all reading both Gandhi, but also interpreters of Gandhi um, and developing and applying nonviolent direct action uh, in the United States. Again, very as early as 38, 39, you're, you're seeing that happen. Uh, and they write manuals, you know, basically like this is this is this is what works. This is what doesn't work. Uh, they refine those manuals. They teach workshops um, to many, many thousands uh, of activists around the country, although more in the North and West because the South is very dangerous. Um, and those people go on to, you know, create the mass movement uh, of the civil rights movement. John McCluskey. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm trying to figure out different ways in which um, utopianism uh, takes shape and it's, it's pedagogy, how it's taught. Um, but so this will be a quick sidebar and a quick question. The sidebar is um, class of 67, Hubert Sapp was director of the Highlander School oh. um, for a bit. And that's the school as we learn, or at least I learned very late that uh, Rosa Parks attended before the bus. Mm -hmm. um, and it was an interracial uh, school, I believe in the hills of Tennessee. 
would that sort of project fit under the roof of utopianism? Well, that's my first chapter. So yes. Um, so so let me just step back. Uh, um, and I'll, I should I should just tell a quick story about the archives. Uh, this my most my most thrilling moment in the archives uh, in this book journey. I was in Detroit at the Wayne State Library. They have a Ruther archives, which are fabulous labor archives. And I was and they have a small collection of Rosa Parks papers. And I was like, well, I have to look at those, you know. Um, so I was actually researching um, Highlander, but. Uh, so I pull out, I pull out some folders and she has handwritten notes from her workshop at Highlander, which was again, like two months before the, before Montgomery, before she refused to stand up on the, or sit, sit down, stand up on the bus. Um, so I actually was able to look at these handwritten notes about her experience at, at Highlander. Um, so in terms of how Highlander fits in, there's a movement in the early 20th century, starting in the 19 teens known as the workers' education movement. And this was actually started mostly by feminist uh, labor organizers in the ILGWU, International Ladies Garment Workers Union. Um, and they, they had this vision of what they called social unionism. And they wanted to create schools that not only gave workers the tools they needed to create trade unions, but also basically tools for living. Um, if you think about the slogan, bread and roses, Right. They put a lot of emphasis on the roses, right, as well as the bread. So they talked about creating a new society in which there would be racial equality, there would be gender equality, um, there would be enough, there would be living wages for workers, there would be music, there would be theater. Um, and so I talk about two places where this gets played out. One is a maybe less familiar to folks, which is called Brookwood Labor College. That's in uh, New York State, upstate New York, a couple hours outside of New York City. Um, that was headed up by a very important pacifist by the name of A.J. Musty. Uh, and it included some of the African-American um, activists that went there included Ella Baker, I'm sure people know, uh, Polly Murray attended there as well. So very influential. And then Highlander Folk School, which is indeed in Tennessee in the Hills, um, which also was a workers education institute. Uh, and, and in the 1930s really focused entirely on labor but as the labor movement begins to be suffer from the Cold War uh, and from increasing kind of schisms and violence, they turn increasingly in the 1940s towards the issues of, around civil rights. Um, and again, they, it's an interracial uh, community. It, it, it teaches nonviolence. It teaches cooperation, um, and it teaches music. That's where that's where all the movement songs came from. Was Highlander? Uh, we shall overcome comes from Highlander, right? all of those songs. Uh, and one of the things that Rosa Parks talks about actually, when she's there, one of her kind of moments that she, she sort of exulted in is it was the first time that white people served her, that they cooked the food and presented her with the food and cleaned up afterwards. And, and she just loved that. I mean, she just thought that was, you know, incredible. It was incredibly powerful to be in, in, a, in a community um, where that would happen. So I do, you know, they would not have defined themselves as utopian communities, but in the, both in the case of Brookwood and Highlander, they had a vision of a new world. And they talked about that um, in, using those kinds, that kind of language. I, I guess we know that uh, you, being utopian is a powerful magnet, but it's, it's also a term that can be dismissive. Uh, that it's too much of a dream. And I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your own personal relationship with this, 
where you've been most most hopeful uh, uh, about the the different utopian groups, where you where you've gotten most discouraged, and uh, where where you are with it now, what you've uh, uh, made of it. But, I mean, there's a lot of inspiring examples of, of people trying right. to do stuff. But how do you evaluate the 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 whole picture? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and I should just say just briefly, so obviously the term utopia from Thomas More um, means literally no place, right? Uh, so so that, and that's one of the ways in which um, it can be dismissed or seen as a kind of dreaming that is not practical, not pragmatic, uh, doesn't kind of move forward. It's too kind of out there. So that's always been a, a sort of critique of utopia, definitely. Uh, the other critique of utopia, which really comes to fore in the immediate post-war, post-World War II period, is that it gets associated with totalitarianism. So after World War II, um, there is a kind of, I think it's sometimes talked about as a, you know, a consensus uh, against utopia because utopia would potentially lead to Stalinism or obviously to fascism, right? Um, so there's that kind of fear, a totalizing, totalitarian, totalizing utopias taking over an entire society could have terrible, you know, terrible effects. So there was definitely a, a decline um, in, in this sort of thinking compared to say the 1920s and 30s after World War II. And then more recently, thinking about like the 1970s, uh, you have you know, incidents like the, the Manson family uh, or Jonestown um, and, and, and a, kind of, a kind of panic over cults, right? And the, what is the relationship between cults and utopian communities? Um, so, so that's, you know, that's all makes it much more troubled. It's not a simple history. Uh, it's not a simple idea. Um, what I guess I find personally, both as a scholar and maybe just as a human being, is that this, this kind of practice of social dreaming, um, of, of having this imaginative idea about what the future might look like, uh, what Robin D.G. Kelly, who's a, a terrific historian who was at Michigan for a while, um, you know, he refers to as freedom dreams, right? Um, or somebody like Bell Hooks talks about revolutionary love, that that hopefulness is something that I think is, is enormously powerful. Um, and even though most of these, the actual utopian communities are relatively short-lived, um, and if you want, you know, whether or not they're, they can be called a success is certainly debatable. That form of social dreaming, the freedom dreams, I think can be very generative. Um, so that I find hopeful. I, I've been teaching about utopias for years before I wrote the book uh, to undergraduates. And, I, and they always really, they're always really interested to hear about these experiments. I think it makes them feel somewhat hopeful as well. Um, so yeah, so, so that's one of some of the reasons why it's always intrigued me, certainly. George. So I think you've answered this to somewhat, but let me ask the question in perhaps a somewhat more direct way. What is the logic that makes people think that a utopian society can be created without violence? Yeah, that's something that's hard to get your brain around, and I'm not sure I have, right? So um, the idea of the utopian socialist, the idea of Edward Bellamy in looking backward is that he believes that, you know, the, in his novel, the year 2000, you know, there's a socialist utopia, and, but he's very murky about how you get there, 
right? So many of the utopian socialists, for example, in the, in the 1890s, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, were opposed to labor unions and were opposed to strikes because they didn't want to see that kind of class conflict. Um, and so, so I think that's problematic. I mean, so how do you get, you know, to this future, the socialist future without conflict? Um, so later on, you know, by the time you get to the 20s and 30s, like the Brookwood Labor College and A.J. Musty, they're actually very engaged in labor activism and they understand there has to be class conflict. Um, but they're still, but now they're applying these, these new tools of, non, of Gandhian nonviolent direct action, which the hope is that you're going to be able to get there um, using these particular tools. And that's successful to a certain extent. Um, but we all know the limits of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the limits of the Voting Rights Act, and especially as that's been more dismantled, um, and the ways in which those, those legislative successes did not lead to broad structural change. So I actually, um, I actually am not sure. Um, I'm actually not a pacifist myself entirely. So I'm not sure you can get there without, without conflict and without violence. Um, but I think the attempt to do so is a worthy one. So there's a little bit of a squiggly answer, but I, I do understand your point very much. Spencer. Yes, uh, Tori, I'm really um, enjoying the depths of your and breadth of your research and knowledge. Thanks. Uh, it's very, very enjoyable. And I, I'm wondering if, uh, uh, which, and I like this uh, tie of uh, nonviolent movements with utopian movements and of Gandhi. And I was wondering if, uh, if uh, Bailey's, uh, Howard Thurman's wife, mm -hmm. Sue Thurman, uh, Bailey, mm -hmm. uh, Sue Bailey Thurman, I mean, uh, came up uh, in writing. She, she, she went to uh, India uh, and was a, dragged her husband along with her, uh, Howard, uh, she was representing a, uh, a sort of a Christian utopian uh, uh, group, and uh, uh, she she uh, was a very interesting figure uh, in terms of like women uh, in the movement, uh, and uh, the fact that Daddy King was Howard mm -hmm. Thurman's uh, uh, classmate at at uh, at uh, Morehouse, and. Uh, uh, he he uh, it, uh, encouraged Martin to go and do his graduate work under Thurman because of his utopian views and his experience with Gandhi. I I, uh, I had the, the privilege of hearing that from from Thurman himself when I arrived at Harvard. My dad said, "Well, before we even go to the campus, there's one person that we have to go and see." And we went and saw Howard Thurman, had lunch with him. And uh, that, that's why he was talking, uh, he praised his wife. Uh, and I was wondering about, uh, uh, I was thrilled, I mean, to hear your depth on that. You really got into it. She deserves her own biography. Um, she's a really remarkable woman, and I wish I had more space to write about her in more depth. There is oh, a new biography yeah. of Howard Thurman by Peter yeah. Eisenstadt. Um, that I haven't gotten to yet, but I, I'm sure there's more material there. But she was remarkable. I mean, she she was also a really talented musician. And really, one of the things that was really important for Thurman's, um, you know, liturgy and, and, and his worship uh, style, both when he, you know, was uh, at 
at Howard uh, for a while. And then when he did the interracial church in San Francisco is music and theater and, and music was really central to a lot of the work they did together. Um, so, and she, she met, yes, she was, she was, you know, there was actually two couples um, and she was with him uh, and, and engaged in the conversations with Gandhi. And I think, and the, the one photograph we have is actually of her and Gandhi and he's sort of in the background. So, um, yeah. so he, she was definitely really absolutely key, um, key to this. And I, I did know, I did know that, uh, that Howard Thurman knew King's father, father, they, they had that familial relationship um, together. And then when Thurman goes to Boston, um, after he leaves the church, the, the San Francisco church, that's when him and King start going to ball games together and, and, you know, spend a lot of time together in that period before King goes back to Montgomery or goes to Montgomery. So, so all those ties I think are, are, are absolutely, um, central, uh, and Howard Thurman's, you know, I'm so glad you, you got a chance to meet him. He just sounded like, he sounds like such a remarkable human being. And because he wasn't, if somebody describes him as a mover of movers, which I thought was a really great description, he himself is not a charismatic leader, right? Um, although he is certainly in, on the pulpit, uh, you know, and giving speeches maybe somewhat charismatic, but he's incredibly influential. Um, and his most popular book, Jesus and the Disinherited, uh, you know, apparently King kept like literally in his jacket pocket throughout the movement. So it had this sort of tattered, copy that underlined and so forth um, that he carried around with him. Uh, so, so it's really important to, to, to recognize um, some of these figures who, again, might not be household names, but really provided a lot of uh, the ideas, certainly the spiritual ideas that helped, you know, help movement activists um, survive. He was really good friends with Polly Murray and helped her a lot. He was a mentor for her, um, as well as many of the founders of CORE. So, so he was he was there taking care of and mentoring lots of folks, definitely. Doug, uh, yes, I'd like to uh, return to uh, the comments that you made at the very beginning of, the, of this Zoom session uh, concerning the integration or segregation of uh, public facilities. Mm -hmm. and the relationship that that may or may not have with the racial composition of various American sports. For example, uh, you know, college football and professional football and basketball has a very large uh, proportion of uh, black uh, players. Um, and uh, to, to play those sports, you don't need to have any kind of a enclosed, necessarily enclosed facility. You can have a big field to play football in or uh, outdoor basketball courts and so forth and so on. But if you look at swimming, it's a very different situation. Uh, my impression is that there are relatively few uh, black swimmers uh, that compete in uh, national swim meets and international swim meets and so forth. And if you think back in the past, uh, swimming pools were often uh, in my experience, very heavily segregated. Um, so I wonder if you could just comment on your thoughts about the relationship between, you know, segregated public facilities and the racial composition of, uh, of our sports. It's a, it's a great example of the long legacy um, and after effects of segregation in many ways. Uh, so you're absolutely right to point specifically to swimming. So think about, for example, the fact that the YMCA and YWCA's 
were all segregated until the late 1940s. And even after that, remain many of them segregated afterwards. Um, when, when I was working on my last book, a lot, if you, if you look at activist memoirs, often their first experience of, of the, the, the humiliation and profound disappointment and anger of segregation comes from trying to go swimming and not being able to. Um, so, so that for, for young, for, for black children, um, they were at much higher risk of drowning, both because they were not getting swimming instruction, uh, and also because they were swimming in what we call natural waters. So maybe a local river or lake, and that's much more dangerous as well. So there was actually, there's actually a, a cost even in terms of injury and death as a result of segregated swimming, but swimming pools and beaches were, um, more profoundly segregated than really any other public accommodation uh, around the country. And that has to do with issues around um, fears of contamination, right? It's sort of stereotypes about, about cleanliness, <clears throat> all, the, all the stereotypes about around sexuality, that one is scantily clad when one is swimming. So there's all sorts of fears around that. So it's an unbelievably um, segregated space. Uh, so for example, when amusement parks finally started being desegregated, they, the swimming pools would um, often remain segregated or be closed down. Uh, Walt Disney, when he opened Disneyland, no swimming pools, no beaches, because he knows that those are places of, of kind of conflict and particularly uh, of racial conflict. So there's this long legacy. After 1964 um, Civil Rights Act, uh, what happens is that pools get cemented, you know, they get, they just get destroyed. So the public swimming pools um, often are, you know, particularly in the South, but else, elsewhere as well, completely closed down rather than desegregate. And when I grew up in New Jersey in the 1970s, there was a swim club where you, some people might be familiar with this, where you paid like $5 to swim all summer. That's a direct legacy of, of, uh, of an attempt to skirt the Civil Rights Act. Um, because a private club, of course, I know there's lawyers here, so a private club is uh, exempt, right, from the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So they create, you know, they create these clubs uh, where they can exclude, you know, people they want to exclude. So there's that long legacy as well. When public high schools were desegregated, they often closed down the swimming pool. Um, so it so it coincides with a degradation of public accommodations more generally um, by the 1970s. So, you know, there's not just not as many swimming pools around public swimming pools, people have backyard pools, or there's these swim clubs, but you don't have the same sort of access to the kind of lavish public swimming, uh, swimming uh, pools that you saw, say, in the 1930s and 1940s. So yeah, the, the you know, relationship to sports is, is a direct one. And um, there are now campaigns and efforts to try to deal with the lack of swimming instruction, uh, which again, really can cause, can actually cause things like drowning. So there is some recognition of that today, but it does have this longer after effect. Ronnie, Ronnie Blau. It seemed that the way you're talking about utopianism, that there are two sides. One is the theoretical side where somebody writes a book that, you know, is utopian. And then there are the embodiments like utopian communities or schools or where Rosa Parks went or Brook Farm in Massachusetts in mm -hmm. the 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, so if the embodiment is limited geographically, does that limit the power of it? I mean, you know, because it's in one place, as opposed to say the 
fight for women to get the vote, which mm. finally happened in 1920, which was more dispersed? Um, I think yes and no. One of the things I thought was so interesting is that there are uh, these folks who essentially um, travel from one community to another. Uh, so so there, there are individuals who are almost like utopian tourists who are traveling around to look at, for example, the Delta Cooperative Farm, which I write about in Mississippi, uh, Brookwood, some of these peace farms. And so they're kind of they're spreading this message elsewhere and they're writing about it in journalism. So in that way, it's somewhat um, it's somewhat influential, um, but it's not it's not a mass movement. And the mass movement doesn't really happen until SNCC in many ways, right? So what it does is it, is it creates the building blocks for that mass movement. So, you know, when Montgomery, when the bus boycott happens, you know, Bayard Rustin goes to Montgomery uh, along with a number of, of other folks who were involved in this 1940s activism. And they talk to the Montgomery activists, including King, about, about how to do nonviolence. And that of course happens with SNCC as well. But it's not a mass movement. And that's part of, you know, that's part of, um, the limitations, but also the potentiality, the idea that small groups of people can actually create real change um, by developing the, these, these visions of a new society. Uh, but there are boundaries on that. And then something like the Father Divine movement, which was an incredibly important, maybe the, the most successful utopian community of the 20th century, you know, really dies off by the 1960s. So, and it's little remembered today, but yeah. A couple things. Uh, first, back to swimming. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and the YMCAs uh, were very, very uh, interesting in that none of the black YMCAs had swimming pools. Right. Only the white ones had swimming pools. There was one that was integrated, and my mother used to drive me over for about 45 minutes to one that was near the White House, and that's where I swam from the time I was about seven years old on, and I'm a swimmer. I was on varsity in high school, et cetera. But Pasadena had an even better uh, <clears throat> system, if you like. The blacks could swim every Wednesday. They would mm -hmm. then empty all the water out of the pool mm -hmm. until the whites could come in on Thursday and they wouldn't be contaminated. Maybe they thought their skin was going to get darker or something. I wasn't quite certain. Uh, but uh, just absolutely ludicrous is what it amounts to. Back to the utopian societies. Was there a common goal for all of them trying to get together? So there is some coordination among the radical pacifists. Some of the other chapters that I write about, um, well, for example, the Delta Cooperative Farm in Mississippi um, is attacked by the Klan um, incessantly in the early 1950s, and they have to shut down. So some, some of these groups are sort of attacked, and they have to sort of end their experimentation. So and, and then the workers' education stuff is a little bit earlier in the 20th century. But there is coordination. There are national conferences, for example, um, places like Pendle Hill, which is a Quaker retreat center uh, in Pennsylvania near Swarthmore, some of you may have heard of. Um, that becomes a, a central place uh, for these folks to meet. Um, Chautauquas, various Chautauquas, like in Colorado, and I have a Chautauqua near us in New York State. Um, also are, are places where these radical pacifists will meet and strategize. This is what I'm doing in my community. Um, and then the fellowship houses as well, uh, which become the places where the Freedom Riders are trained in these fellowship houses uh, before they go south in 1961. So, so there is some coordination among those groups. Yeah. John Woodford. For my question, I just wanted to say my, my parents were married by Howard Thurman in oh. Washington. And then I, when I went to Harvard, like uh, Spence, they took me to uh, meet him over 
at uh, BU. But uh, yeah, that was 1940 that they were married. Anyway, I was wondering about the Bradens, uh, Carl and Ann Braden, uh, and whether you might say something about the distinctive um, um, features of the Highlander School. One thing to me seems to be that they very much wanted to influence white people and not have a civil rights movement that was just uh, you know white people talking about black people to black people but trying to have an impact on the white community, which of course is very dangerous in our country. That's the, those are the people who I think often face the worst uh, uh, terror. Right. I mean, I actually call that a kind of utopian interracialism. It's a vision of interracial um, uh, cooperation, which is, is about full equality, right? Isn't about isn't about, you know, looking down upon. So Miles Horton, who was the leader of Highlander through much of the 20th century. Um, so he went to the Brookwood Labor School and, and, and saw what they were doing and wanted to do something similar. But he had a more kind of small D democratic approach. So he was really interested with Highlander of trying to find out what people actually needed. So the first thing they did was actually, this is in the 30s, is to go you know, to the rural area of Tennessee talking to very impoverished white families. You know, What do you need? Um, what, what kinds of things can we help you with? Uh, and that turned out to be childcare um, for, for some of the women. Uh, it turned about to be some sort of you know, training programs for workers, and then obviously unionization as well. So they did a lot of work um, particularly with a, the sort of white working class uh, in, in the Deep South, um, and for a while had some real success on interracial unionism uh, in the Deep South as well. Um, but yes, Carl and Ann Braden, you know, this amazing radical uh, white couple who were deeply committed to the civil rights movement and were very important for Highlander, were part of a, a group of, of, you know, white intellectuals, activists, musicians. Pete Seeger spent a lot of time at, at Highlander as well. Um, who have very much took up this, this perspective of, you know, as the historian John Dittmer talks about listening to local people um, and, then, and then developing programs, developing strategies out of what came out of those conversations and those out, out of those workshops. So very, very bottom up. Um, and that was very important in terms of the ethos of, of Highlander. Uh, and they understood you know, um, uh, another really amazing activist, Septina Clark, comes out of Highlander. So she's an African-American woman. She'd been fired. She was a school teacher in Charleston. Uh, she was fired from her job because she <clears throat> was a member of the NAACP. And this was a period in the 50s when the NAACP was being attacked in the South. Um, and somebody tells her about Highlander. She goes and, and, and does a workshop there. Um, about education. And so Miles Horton puts her in charge of this amazing campaign. Uh, essentially, it's a voting rights campaign, um, but where she created the citizenship schools. So she, you know, she and the other people she trains, these are all African-American oh. activists, fan out across the South, uh, and they do literacy work um, and other kinds of work to get people ready to vote. Uh, and that that's like a, a good example of the kind of work that Highlander did so effectively. Yeah, I should say, let me add uh, that book, Local People by Dittmer is one of the greatest books on the civil rights movement. Yeah. And, uh, those interested, in it, I think, should take a look at it. The bottom Agreed. up. Mm -hmm. yeah. Victoria, what's your sense of the future of uh, utopianism when you think about it? Well, there's nothing like multiple 
existential crises to get people thinking in new ways. Um, so it's unfortunate that we're in the situation that we're in between the pandemic, the climate crisis, uh, you know, issues still around, around racial violence and police killings, um, all of that, right? Uh, but I am seeing, I am seeing a lot of interest uh, in kind of thinking, thinking outside the box is such a cliche, but, it, but, you know, doing this sort of idea of social experimentation. So there's been a resurgence of interest in cooperatives, for example. Um, and I think you know, somebody had mentioned the, the cooperatives in the South. There's actually a lot more interest in developing uh, cooperatives as a way for more impoverished communities to have access to, to you know, decent, um, low, uh, lower prices for, for decent goods, particularly things like food. Uh, so you see that there's a lot of interest in communal living and cooperative housing because of our housing crisis uh, in many communities as well. So, I mean, I think that's interesting. The, it's also important to realize that, you know, the Black Lives Matter move, movement, for example, uh, is built on the principles of nonviolent direct action. And if you go to the SNCC Digital Gateway, which is a really great website of SNCC veterans, they have a whole section of that with SNCC veterans who are training this new generation of activists. And just in the same way that the radical pacifists of the 40s did for um, the SNCC students of, of the 60s, that's happening again now today. So there's strands like that that I find, um, I find somewhat hopeful. Um, there's, I know, I'm also worried about the midterm elections, just like all of you. Uh, so, so, you know, I try to kind of hold on to some of those uh, ideals looking forward. To follow up on uh, Victoria's uh, stories about the pools and what's happened in the South, uh, I'll give a shameless plug for a book of uh, civil rights stories of mine from South Georgia. And the title of it is The Great Pool Jump. Oh, yeah. And, in 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 '63, we we uh, the, the 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 town fathers in Albany, Georgia, were pretty cagey characters. So they saw the handwriting on the wall, and they sold their town swimming pool to a private citizen yeah. uh, who was actually a transplant from Massachusetts, uh, and and but became a prominent citizen in Albany, Georgia. Well. So we had our protests were all about the pool in the summer of 63. We'd have marches over there. And during one of them, three guys who just three guys who had no previous movement experience whatsoever suddenly climbed the fence and jumped in the pool. And Randy Battle, who was one of the three, said that all the white people in the pool leapt out, out like dolphins. Yeah. And and uh <laughs> <laughs> these guys, not, these guys could not need. None of them could swim at all. Could none of them could swim a lick, and they had. They were fully dressed. They had their shoes on, and they dog paddled the whole length of the pool. Somehow went out the back gate, and the during this, some of the protesters in the front of the pool got arrested. But the consternation, the shock, the paralysis was so great at the pool that these guys just walked out of the back of the pool. <laughs> and left, walked up the street. Uh, and fortunately, a dog began to bark at them because they were all soaking wet. And that saved them because they, they ran and they got away and they climbed up a tree at a church and they hid in this tree. And then the deacons came out uh, of 
the church and they were having a conference under the tree and they felt this water dripping out. And they looked up and said, what are you guys doing? So they, they then uh, put them in the church and hid them for the next day or two. And so they totally got away. <laughs> I, I do know that My story, comment. although I did not I did not know about the tree piece of it. I, I write a little bit about that um, in the book, and it, it's, such, it's such a fabulous story. Victoria, you mentioned uh, SNCC veterans training young activists, and I'm wondering, among your own students uh, and also your experience of young activists generally, how much interest you see in trying to do to make things different and better? Oh, quite a lot. I mean, you know, my, right at the moment, my students are exhausted. Um, I mean, I teach at a large public university. We have a lot of first generation students, um, college students. And so many of them are, most of them are working uh, jobs, right, while they're attending college, uh, university, and and COVID has just, you know, done a number on them. So uh, there's certainly a level of exhaustion, um, but to the extent that they can engage um, and want to engage, it, they're, it's very, I mean, I think, I think they're very inspiring. So um, I don't see, you know, I, I think this is a, many of them were involved in the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of 2020, um, Poise, uh, after the murder of, of George Floyd. Uh, so when I did a civil rights class after that, many of them had actually you know, sort of been on the streets for several months um, and brought that experience uh, into the classroom. They're certainly deeply engaged in the climate struggle, uh, many of them, and they have a kind of openness uh, to, for example, LGBTQ you know, issues that I did not see even five or 10 years ago. So yeah, I, I take a lot of um, inspiration um, and strength from, from my own students, definitely. That was Victoria Walcott. Her new book is titled, Living in the Future, Utopianism and the Long Civil Rights Movement. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcast and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>